Chapter Twenty One of The Last Chronicle of Basset. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. The Last Chronicle of Basset by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty One. Mr. Robarts on his embassy. Mr. Robarts was not altogether easy in his mind as he approached Mr. Crawley's house. He was aware that the task before him was a very difficult one, and he had not confidence in himself that he was exactly the man fitted for the performance of such a task. He was a little afraid of Mr. Crawley, acknowledging tacitly to himself that the man had a power of ascendancy with which he would hardly be able to cope successfully. In old days he had once been rebuked by Mr. Crawley, and had been cowed by the rebuke, and though there was no touch of rancour in his heart on this account, no slightest remaining venom, but rather increased respect and friendship, Still he was unable to overcome the remembrance of the scene in which the perpetual curate of Hogglestock had undoubtedly had the mastery of him. So, when two dogs have fought and one was conquered, the conquered dog will always show an unconscious submission to the conqueror. He hailed a boy on the road as he drew near to the house, knowing that he would find no one at the parsonage to hold his horse for him and was thus able without delay to walk through the garden and knock at the door. Papa was not at home, Jane said. Papa was at the school, but Papa could certainly be summoned. She herself would run across to the school if Mr. Robarts would come in. So Mr. Robarts entered and found Mrs. Crawley in the sitting-room. Mr. Crawley would be in directly, she said, and then hurrying on to the subject with confused haste, in order that a word or two might be spoken before her husband came back, she expressed her thanks and his for the good things which had been sent to them at Christmas tide. "'It's old Lady Lufton's doings,' said Mr. Robarts, trying to laugh the matter over. "'I knew that it came from Framley, Mr. Robarts, and I know how good you all are there. I have not written to thank Lady Lufton. I thought it better not to write.' Your sister will understand why, if no one else does. But you will tell them from me, I am sure, that it was, as they intended, a comfort to us. Your sister knows too much of us for me to suppose that our great poverty can be secret from her. And, as far as I am concerned, I do not now much care who knows it. There is no disgrace in not being rich, said Mr. Robarts. No and the feeling of disgrace which does attach itself to being so poor as we are is deadened by the actual suffering which such poverty brings with it at least it has become so with me i am not ashamed to say that i am very grateful for what you all have done for us at framley but you must not say anything to him about that of course i will not mrs crawley his spirit is higher than mine i think and he suffers more from the natural disinclination which you all have to receiving arms. Are you going to speak to him about this affair of the check, Mr. Robarts? I am going to ask him to put his case into some lawyer's hands. Oh, I wish you would, and will he not? 
it is very kind of you your coming to ask him but has he so strong an objection he will tell you that he has no money to pay a lawyer but surely if he were convinced that it was absolutely necessary for the vindication of his innocence he would submit to charge himself with an expense so necessary not only for himself but for his family he will say it ought not to be necessary you know mr robarts that in some respects he is not like other men you will not let what i say of him set you against him indeed no it is most kind of you to make the attempt he will be here directly and when he comes i will leave you together while she was yet speaking his step was heard along the gravel path and he hurried into the room with quick steps i crave your pardon mr robarts he said that i should keep you waiting now mr robarts had not been there ten minutes and any such asking of pardon was hardly necessary and even in his own house mr crawley affected a mock humility as though either through his own debasement or because of the superior station of the other clergyman he were not entitled to put himself on an equal footing with his visitor he would not have shaken hands with mr robarts intending to indicate that he did not presume to do so while the present accusation was hanging over him had not the action been forced upon him and then there was something of a protest in his manner as though remonstrating against a thing that was unbecoming to him mr robarts without analyzing it understood it all and knew that behind the humility there was a crushing pride a pride which in all probability would rise up and crush him before he could get himself out of the room again it was perhaps after all a question whether the man was not served rightly by the extremities to which he was reduced there was something radically wrong within him which had put him into antagonism with all the world and which produced these never-dying grievances there were many clergymen in the country with incomes as small as that which had fallen to the lot of mr crawley but they managed to get on without displaying their sores as mr crawley displayed his they did not wear their old rustic cloaks with all that ostentatious bitterness of poverty which seemed to belong to that garment when displayed on mr crawley's shoulder such for a moment were mr robarts thoughts and he almost repented himself of his present mission but then he thought of mrs crawley and remembering that her sufferings were at any rate undeserved determined that he would persevere mrs crawley disappeared almost as soon as her husband appeared and mr robarts found himself standing in front of his friend who remained fixed on the spot with his hands folded over each other and his neck slightly bent forward in token also of humility i regret he said that your horse should be left there exposed to the inclemency of the weather but the horses won't mind it a bit said mr robarts a parson's horse is like a butcher's and knows that he mustn't be particular about waiting in the cold i never have had one myself said mr crawley now mr robarts had had more horses than one before now and had been thought by some to have incurred greater expense than was befitting in his stable comforts the subject therefore was a sore one and he was worried a little i just wanted to say a few words to you crawley he said 
and if I am not occupying too much of your time. My time is altogether at your disposal. Will you be seated? Then Mr. Roberts sat down, and, swinging his hat between his legs, bethought himself how he should begin his work. We had the archdeacon over at Framley the other day, he said. Of course you know the archdeacon? I never had the advantage of any acquaintance with Dr. Grantly. Of course I know him well by name, and also personally, that is, by sight. And by character? Nay, I can hardly say so much as that, but I am aware that his name stands high with many of his order. Exactly, that is what I mean. You know that his judgment is thought more of in clerical matters than that of any other clergyman in the county. By a certain party, Mr. Robarts. Well, yes, they don't think much of him, I suppose, at the palace, but that won't lower him in your estimation. I by no means wish to derogate from Dr. Grantly's high position in his own archdeaconry, to which, as you are aware, I am not attached, nor to criticize his conduct in any respect. It would be unbecoming in me to do so, but I cannot accept it as a point in a clergyman's favor that he should be opposed to his bishop. Now, this was too much for Mr. Robarts. After all that he had heard of the visit paid by Mr. Crawley to the palace, of the venom displayed by Mrs. Proudie on that occasion, and of the absolute want of subordination to episcopal authority which Mr. Crawley himself was supposed to have shown, Mr. Robarts did feel it hard that his friend the Archdeacon should be snubbed in this way because he was deficient in reverence for his bishop. I thought, Crawley, he said, that you yourself were inclined to dispute orders coming to you from the palace. The world at least says as much concerning you. What the world says of me I have learned to disregard very much, Mr. Robarts, but I hope that I shall never disobey the authority of the church when properly and legally exercised. I hope with all my heart you never will, nor I either, and the archdeacon, who knows to the breadth of a hair what a bishop ought to do and what he ought not, and what he may do and what he may not, will, I should say, be the last man in England to sin in that way. Very probably, I am far from contradicting you there. Pray understand, Mr. Roberts, that I bring no accusation against the archdeacon. Why should I? I didn't mean to discuss him at all. Nor did I, Mr. Robarts. I only mentioned his name because, as I said, he was over with us the other day at Framley, and we were all talking about your affair. My affair, said Mr. Crawley, and then came a frown upon his brow, and a gleam of fire into his eyes, which effectually banished that look of extreme humility which he had assumed. And may I ask why the Archdeacon was discussing my affair? Simply from the kindness which he bears to you. I am grateful for the archdeacon's kindness, as a man is bound to be for any kindness, whether displayed wisely or unwisely. But it seems to me that my affair, as you call it, Mr. Roberts, is of that nature that they who wish well to me will better further their wishes by silence than by any discussion. Then I cannot agree with you. Mr. Crawley shrugged his shoulders opened his hands a little and then closed them and bowed his head he could not have declared more clearly by any words that he differed altogether from mr robarts and that as the subject was one so peculiarly his own he had a right to expect that his opinion should be allowed to prevail against that of any other person if you come to that you know 
how is anybody's tongue to be stopped that vain tongues cannot be stopped i am well aware i do not expect that people's tongues should be stopped i am not saying what men will do but what good wishes should dictate well perhaps you'll hear me out for a minute mr crawley again bowed his head whether we were wise or unwise we were discussing this affair whether i stole mr soames's money no nobody supposed for a moment you had stolen it i cannot understand how they should suppose anything else knowing as they do that the magistrates have committed me for the theft this took place at framley you say and probably in lord lufton's presence exactly and lord lufton was chairman of the sitting of the magistrates at which i was committed how can it be that he should think otherwise i am sure he has not an idea that you were guilty nor yet has dr thorne who was also one of the magistrates i don't suppose one of them then thought so then their action to say the least of it was very strange it was all because you had nobody to manage it for you i thoroughly believe that if you had placed the matter in the hands of a good lawyer you would never have heard a word more about it that seems to be the opinion of everybody i speak to on the subject then in this country a man is to be punished or not according to his ability to fee a lawyer i am not talking about punishment and presuming an innocent man to have the ability and not the will to do so he is to be punished to be ruined root and branch self and family character and pocket simply because knowing his own innocence he does not choose to depend on the mercenary skill of a man whose trade he abhors for the establishment of that which would be clear as the sun at noonday you say i am innocent and yet you tell me i am to be condemned as a guilty man have my gown taken from me be torn from my wife and children be disgraced before the eyes of all men and be made a byword and a thing horrible to be mentioned because i will not fee an attorney to fee another man to come and lie on my behalf to browbeat witnesses to make false appeals and perhaps shed false tears in defending me you have come to me asking me to do this if i understand you telling me that the archdeacon would so advise me that is my object mr crawley as he had spoken had in his vehemence risen from his seat and mr roberts was also standing then tell the archdeacon that i will have none of his advice i will have no one there paid by me to obstruct the cause of justice or to hoodwink a jury i have been in courts of law and know what is the work for which these gentlemen are hired i will have none of it and i will thank you to tell the archdeacon so with my respectful acknowledgments of his consideration and condescension i say nothing as to my own innocence or my own guilt but i do say that if i am dragged before that tribunal an innocent man and am falsely declared to be guilty because i lack money to bribe a lawyer to speak for me then the laws of this country deserve but little of that reverence which we are accustomed to pay to them and if i be guilty nobody supposes you to be guilty and if i be guilty continued mr crawley altogether ignoring the interruption except by the repetition of his words and a slight raising of his voice i will not add to my guilt by hiring any one to prove a falsehood or to disprove a truth i am sorry that you should say so mr crawley i speak according to what light i have mr roberts and if i have been over-warm with you 
and I am conscious that I have been in fault in that direction, I must pray you to remember that I am somewhat hardly tried. My sorrows and troubles are so great that they rise against me and disturb me, and drive me on, whither I would not be driven. But, my friend, is not that just a reason why you should trust in this matter to someone who can be more calm than yourself? I cannot trust to anyone, in a matter of conscience. To do as you would have me is, to me, wrong. Shall I do wrong because I am unhappy? You should cease to think it wrong when so advised by persons you can trust. I can trust no one with my own conscience, not even the Archdeacon, great as he is. The Archdeacon has meant only well to you. I will presume so. I will believe so. I do think so. Tell the Archdeacon from me that I humbly thank him, that, in a matter of church question, I might probably submit my judgment to his, even though he might have no authority over me, knowing as I do that in such matters his experience has been great. Tell him also that, though I would fain that this unfortunate affair might burden the tongue of none among my neighbours, at least till I shall have stood before the judge to receive the verdict of the jury, and, if needful, his lordship's sentence, still I am convinced that in what he has spoken, as also in what he has done, he has not yielded to the idleness of gossip, but has exercised his judgment with intended kindness. He has certainly intended to do a service, and as for its not being talked about, it is out of the question. And for yourself, Mr. Roberts, whom I have ever regarded as a friend since circumstances brought me into your neighbourhood, for you, whose sister I love tenderly in memory of past kindness, though now she is removed so far above my sphere as to make it unfit that I should call her my friend, she does not think so at all. For yourself, as I was saying, pray believe me that, though from the roughness of my manner, being now unused to social intercourse, I seem to be ungracious and forbidding, I am grateful and mindful, and that in the tablets of my heart I have written you down as one in whom I could trust, were it given to me to trust in men and women. Then he turned round with his face to the wall, and his back to his visitor, and so remained till Mr. Roberts had left him. At any rate, I wish you well through your trouble, said Roberts, and as he spoke, he found that his own words were nearly choked by a sob that was rising in his throat. He went away without another word, and got out to his gig without seeing Mrs. Crawley. During one period of the interview he had been very angry with the man, so angry as to make him almost declare to himself that he would take no more trouble on his behalf. Then he had been brought to acknowledge that Mr. Walker was right, and that Crawley was certainly mad. He was so mad, so far removed from the dominion of sound sense, that no jury could say that he was guilty, and that he ought to be punished for his guilt. And, as he so resolved, he could not but ask himself the question whether the charge of the parish ought to be left in the hands of such a man. But at last, just before he went, these feelings and these convictions gave way to pity, and he remembered simply the troubles which seemed to have been heaped on the head of this poor victim to misfortune. As he drove home, he resolved that there was nothing left for him to do but to write to the dean. 
It was known to all who knew them both that the dean and Mr. Crawley had lived together on the closest intimacy at college, and that that friendship had been maintained through life. Though, from the peculiarity of Mr. Crawley's character, the two had not been much together of late years. Seeing how things were going now, and hearing how pitiful was the plight in which Mr. Crawley was placed, the dean would, no doubt, feel it to be his duty to hasten his return to England. He was believed to be at this moment in Jerusalem, and it would be long before a letter could reach him. But there still wanted three months to the assizes, and his return might be probably effected before the end of February. I never was so distressed in my life, Mark Robarts said to his wife. And you think you have done no good? Only this, that I have convinced myself that the poor man is not responsible for what he does, and that for his sake as well as for his own, some person should be enabled to interfere for his protection. Then he told Mrs. Robarts what Mr. Walker had said, also the message which Mr. Crawley had sent to the archdeacon, but they both agreed that that message need not be sent on any further. End of chapter 21